we've come through, you know, the, the 2008, we've come through, you know, the Enron scandal, the housing bubble, the dot-com, 9-11. Like we've come through a lot of things. We always bounce back and we always bounce back way faster than the prognosticators say we're going to bounce back. Hi, I'm Zoe. Hi, I'm Erica. Hey, Erica. This is our podcast. Well, what do we do on the podcast? Uh, we talk to wellness experts. Well, what do we talk about? Mm, wellness stuff. And why are we doing this? Because we want to have an inclusive conversation about things that you can actually use and apply to your life. Right. We don't think that wellness should feel preachy. We think it should feel like everybody can participate. That's right. So if you like what you hear, tell a friend. Give us five stars. They're do all free. All of the above. All of the above. And think of us as your navigators on the bumpy highway to well. And you very appropriately have your blanket. I do. I have my whoopee. Just snuggling right up to it. <laughs> Listen, in these trying times, you got to do what you got to do. Um, people are listening may notice that the auto quality is not top, top marks. Uh, and because we're out of the studio environment and uh, in a I'm in a closet that has a little bit more of an echo to it than I would like. So I've got my whoopee to absorb some of the sound and it's also giving me some comfort. What are you going to do? Um, yeah, we're coming to you live from the Corona closet. It's just like, I don't know, too soon? Can't joke about it yet? Uh, it's it's not too soon. It's just still too, it's, it's too real is what it is. It's just like, it's not even a joke. We just sat down with the always informative Dr. Kirk Parsley, aka the sleep doctor to talk about what's going on with this coronavirus. How can we best, you know, arm ourselves with whatever possible to, to build up our defenses and make sure that we stay healthy. Yeah. We possibly can. And of course, top on his list, as always, is sleep. And he gets into it. Top on his list. I feel like top on pretty much everyone's list, though. Like what I keep hearing over and over again is like sleep, diet, exercise. I mean, which none of this is, none of this is shocking. Or a sleep diet and really like stress reduction in general, but diet and sleep both aid in stress reduction. So it's kind of a nice, happy little cycle. Yeah. I'm doing a little CBD, THC mint right now. So that'll work. That'll work. But yeah, Doc Parsley, as always, is a wealth of knowledge. He's got some, you know, he's got some views on how we're responding to this experience in general and how people can kind of get themselves, get themselves through the day by thinking about it, you know, in bigger picture terms and and trying to put things in perspective, which I think is helpful just because we all at some point or another have lost our sense of perspective. So it's nice to get someone else to weigh in. But yeah, tips on sleep, you can never get enough of those. Um, so yes, thank you, DP. Have a listen. And I'm sure we will be talking to him again very soon because he's just so lovely to talk to. Quite comforting, I have to say. It's true. It's true. Okay, well, enjoy. Hopefully this will help some people get some sleep. Hi, Doc Parsley. How y'all doing? Good. How are you doing? Couldn't be better. So is that what you're telling yourself or is it actually true? Couldn't be better. No, if, if I could be better, I would be. So, But honestly, uh, this doesn't impact my life very much because I work from home. I'm not a big crowd people, so I don't. I tend to avoid crowds anyway. And uh, you know, basically, it's kept me from going to a couple of restaurants. I, I usually go out to a restaurant, you know, two or three times a week. So I won't do. I'm not doing that. That's about the only difference. 
How is everyone? How are things looking in Texas? I mean, Texas is uh, behaving pretty much like everyone else. I think we have like 80 cases in Austin, maybe 400, 500 in the state of Texas, Mm -hmm. uh, something like that. We've had like seven or eight deaths. So it's yet to hit the state. Uh, anything like it's hitting New York, you know, we're still doing the same thing. You know, yeah. like I, I know the governors of lots of places are locked, you know, telling people to shelter in place and all this. Like everybody's doing the same thing here. The, I'd say the upshot is like I've never seen so many people walking in my neighborhood, you know, walking and, and jogging and biking and all that stuff. And because I mean, they can't go to bars and restaurants, you're saying? I guess, you know, because they're, they're, they're not at work. And so, uh, like, I mean, it it just finished raining, so there's no one out right now. But you know, I'll drive. Like I drive, to, I I drive to the gym every day. Still, it's it's a buddy of mine's gym, so it's just three of us in a in a huge gym. You know, when I'm when I'm coming home from the gym, I see like just on my street, I'll see ten or fifteen people walking, you know, or jogging or biking or you know, working in the yard or whatever. So, uh, you know, it's nice in some respects. It's it's getting people um, more balanced and and um, Active, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. So do you think, I mean, obviously you are in this field. Wait, have you not been called on to to help out in hospitals or in any like? No, no. I, I, I mean, I haven't, I haven't been, I mean, they're calling on people who have what, you know, what's called hospital privileges. So people who either admit patients to hospitals or work in hospitals. And I don't, I don't do either of those things. All my stuff is virtual consulting. So. Right. Are you seeing an uptick in your business just from people coming to you for guidance and expertise? Yeah. I mean, my, so my, you know, my practice is an annual program. So people are paying an annual fee to chat with me anyway. So, but definitely I talk every, everybody more interested in talking about various things. Uh, or about this thing, you know, there's more people interested in talking every day. But it's just not overwhelming. It, I, I think, just by and large, a lot of them just need to be settled down. You know, not that this isn't, not that this isn't serious, not that it's not potentially very dangerous. But the world that I came from, being being a SEAL before being a doctor, and even being a doctor is a lot the same. You do, you know, you don't you don't worry about what could be. Uh, all you can do is focus on what you can do right now. And so you identify the threat, which we've done, and we're doing what we can do about it, which is isolate ourselves and wash our hands and don't cough on people and don't sneeze on people. And then wait until we have more information, really, right? I, I mean, know. It just feels like by the time we have more information, it's irrelevant. And it's like the cycle moves so quickly. And you, I mean, yes, we are doing what we can do, but I don't think we're doing a great job of it. I don't think that we're doing a great job of isolating. I really don't. Like... This is a situation in my mind where you actually cannot be too careful. And I don't feel like people are... I mean, certainly people that we're talking to and obviously our own networks, but just like seeing pictures over the weekend of people. And I know you have to get out and I know you have to actually just like live and be human. But I mean, just playing basketball in the park makes sense. In my opinion, it does not. Right. Are you playing with others or are you just shooting hoops? Or is a very important question. Well, I am not doing either of those things, but knowing that there are like groups of people engaging in like group activity play just doesn't seem, doesn't seem extreme yeah. to me. Yeah. You know, so I guess my question on that is, you know, is that an ad, is that an abnormal stratification of risk as a, as a general, I mean, obviously there's basal rates of death, 
right? And and we and we've just come to expect a certain basal rate, and we expect that certain basal rate to be what it is every year. And if something changes that basal rate, then we're really concerned. So we we expect zero. Last year we expected zero risk from coronavirus, which is why the fact that we've had 500 seems like a huge deal right now. And it is because hey, we don't know how bad this could get, but. We had 1.2 million people die in automobile accidents last year. That's a basal rate that we've just come to expect. Now, we could get rid of that by not driving vehicles whatsoever, right? And we'd get rid of that basal rate, but that's not reasonable to us. So uh, I don't know what the basal rate acceptance is for this. It, you know, we, it, it'll be comparable to the flus and other, you know, other viruses and other infectious diseases. At some point, we'll kind of, you know, it's likely this virus will be with us for a long time, like the influenza virus. It, unless maybe it lends itself, it, I doubt it, but it could lend itself to vaccination more than influenza. But you know, there are hundreds of coronaviruses. There are hundreds of influenza viruses, right? Like there, so the the odds that we're going to go like, oh, this is the vaccine that cures this forever. We you know we'll probably get this variant. Will there be another variant? You know, th- this will change our basal rate. Is the point, right? It's going to mm-hmm. change our basal rate of infectious disease death. And nobody wants that. Like nobody's going to voluntarily, you know, voluntarily give up more lives and say, "Well, hell with it." You know, like let's just get rid of a few lives and go about, you know, living our life. But I live my life in a way that, you know, my biggest my biggest risk of death probably comes from heart attack and cancer and medical error, which is the top, you know, the top three causes of death in America. And I'm just one of those people, right? I mean, I'm I'm just a human being. But there are people that you know, we're doing extreme sports all the time. There are people that, you know, live in gangs. There are people that operate, you know, that ride their motorcycles 200 miles an hour. So the stratification of society, there's people who are much more willing to harm themselves and harm others than I am, uh, than probably all of us are. I mean, obviously there's people who are way, way skewed that way. There are people who are way skewed the other way. So I, I don't know for sure that, you know, the people playing... You know, the per- the percentage of population that are being so let's say glib or flippant about this, probably the same portion of society that are glib and flippant about everything and probably change our basal rate of everything about the same. And in general, you know, America is a very safe place to live. It's a very safe place to be sick. So I, I don't think this is going to, you know, change our our view of death. It's not going to change our age expectancy in America. Um, it's unfortunate we have to deal with it. But right now, with what we know, you know, even social distancing, I'm a hundred percent advocate of social distancing distancing. But if you look that up in the Cochrane database, which is like sort of the end all be all where they collect all the medical data that's relevant every year and they re uh, reevaluate all the you know all the best practices in medicine, you know, social distancing, that concept has been around for a long time. It's never proven to be super effective for a lot of things, which is why we don't do it uh, nearly as much. Like we don't, we don't do it for the flu, right? No, we should do it for the flu, right? Because we had, I don't know, like 60,000 people die of the flu last year. And had we done social distancing, that maybe that would have been 30,000 or 40,000, right? We could have saved 20,000 lives. And so it, this has made people you know, more aware of that. But you, you still have, I think you still need to look at the reality of, you know, in, in the world, you know, four, four to five million people die every month, right? That's kind of a basal rate we've come to expect. And this is adding to that basal rate, but it's added 17,000 over a couple of months. So just say it's adding 10,000 a month. 
10,000 to 4 million or 10,000 to 5 million, again, nobody's going to willingly give up their life for some sort of new basal rate, but we, we just have to admit the fact that this is something else to contend with, right? We had to contend with, at some point in human history, we had to contend with, you know, measles and, you know, smallpox and polio. And, and we don't really anymore in America. Some countries still do. So, I mean, that, that's, that's my spin on it. I, I mean, I'm not telling anyone that everything's going to be rosy and not to worry uh, at all. But, you know, just put proportional worry on it and do what you, do what you can do. Act responsibly, be a good citizen. You know, if you're if you're willing to risk other people's lives on a day to day basis, you're probably willing to risk everybody other people's lives during this time as well. So, you know, I'll, I'll do what I can do to I'll do my part to get through to people like that. But uh, you know, the human condition is the human condition, and and not everybody behaves the same, and some people pay dearly for other people's mistakes, right? Like. The automobile accident, like one, you know, 1.2 million people die in car crashes every year. Well, the Aaron are people that caused the accident, right? I mean, sometimes it's a family of four sitting at a stoplight and a and a drunk driver plows into them, right? So, you know, it, they've done everything they could. They wore their seatbelts. They had a safe car. They had airbags. You know, they weren't drinking and driving. They weren't texting and driving. They were doing what they could do, and then and an unfortunate event happened, and so. You know, wear your seatbelt and wash your hands and, you know, drive the speed limit and don't cough on people. And I mean, it's just, it's kind of, it's just another, it's another layer to add to the social responsibility. And right now, in the midst of uncertainty, everybody just wants to do more and more and more. But we don't really know what to do right now other than what we're doing. So time will tell. Like, we'll, we'll learn more about the virus. You know, Italy's the real enigma here. Um, you know, China's cases are essentially flatlined. They aren't yeah, really getting... Can you just give like a little... I mean, what is your opinion of why that is? I mean, there are so many theories. <laughs> and the fact that they're not kind of syncing up and is a big question mark. And the fact that, you know, men are getting it at twice the rate. And, you know, so what is the difference between Italy and China, in your opinion? Well, I mean, so... You know, my opinion is based on other people's opinions because I, I, I mean, I'm not doing independent research on it, but I'm reading other people's research on it. You know, Italy has, I mean, yeah. Italy has a really high population de- density, and uh, I'm sure you've heard that uh, they have, they have a very old population. They're the second oldest population in the world. They're the highest. They're the oldest population in, in the EU. Yeah, um, it's reproduction rate, I think, as well. Not a lot, not a lot of young people in Italy. Yeah, so they're they're uh, they they actually had an, a negative growth rate a couple of years. Uh, I was looking back on that; I can't remember the exact numbers, but I want to say from like 2010 to 2015, their population was actually shrinking. But you know, they're they're on a positive growth rate again. You know, America's been on a positive growth rate, you know, forever, as far as I know. But ours is ours is slowing down as well. But you know, I was I was reading, you know, the population density of Italy is like 530 people per square mile, and America it's like 94 people per square mile. Big difference. That's a really big difference as far as how rapidly it's going to spread. And of course, I think what everyone knows is that the slower this spreads, the better. And we're assuming, and and you know, China's data gives us every reason to believe that 
the reinfection rate, if it exists at all, is very low. But what we don't know is, you know, let's say let's say I had it two weeks ago and they do tigers on me right now and they're and I'm zero, but then I get exposed to it again next week. Well, it's not like I'm gonna have zero viral infection, right? If, if my immune system is throwing antibodies on it and killing it really quickly, there still has to be enough in my body for my immune system to fight off to get an immune response from, right? So, you know, if I go up to a total viral load of maybe one one hundredth of what I had while I actually, you know, felt illness from it, am I still able to give it to somebody else, right? Or what, are, you know, what's, what's the communicability of it? Like, how likely is it that I'm going to give it to somebody else if I'm just out and about doing my thing? Again, the fortunate thing for us is that China is kind of doing that experiment for us, right? Yeah, you know, they they kind of plateaued at eighty one thousand cases, I think slightly under four thousand deaths, and they've kind of been there for uh, you know the last two to three weeks, and they've reopened a lot of factories and production, and people are going back to work. Uh, I know um, they've gotten rid of all of their coronavirus hospitals. They built sixteen hospitals. They've got you know they've taken all of those down. Um, I know all of Apple's manufacturing plants, they have like 42 stores or something over there. All of those are back online. Um, Starbucks in Wuhan has resumed business. So, well, so the world can rest easy now. So, I mean, I, I think that the fact that we so far, and, and this has been a week, right? So, a week for a week, they've been essentially trying to get back to normal. And so far, there's no uptick. If two weeks from now, China starts getting a whole lot of cases again, Oh shit, we're in a we're in a bad spot, right? You know, but there are the, the upshot of it is that we have the entire world working on this right now, right? When when has the world ever been united for anything before? Even world wars, you still had people on both sides of the world war and you had people who weren't participating. But right now, every country in the world is participating in this. And it's all the same enemy, it's all the same virus, right? So that's why we're, you know, every couple of days somebody's publishing a paper about some drug combination that appears to be effective to some degree. And here's how effective it is. And this is what we did. And here's the dosage we gave. And then thousands of other people are going to do that same experiment that same week, you know, within a few days of that. So I, there, there are reasons to be optimistic. I think the, I, you know, I think the worst case is just throttles up and down, throttles up and down, and it leads to sequestering ourselves and coming back out and sequestering ourselves and coming back out. And then, you know, just an overall fear and anxiety about, well, is it really safe to come out of my house again? I think that's you know, the, the impact of the econ- on the economy is, is the bigger threat to all of this. But again, you know, just during my lifetime, we've had a lot of economic disasters that nobody would have freely chosen. And we've managed to get past all of them, right? We've had the dot-com bubble. We had the Enron scandal, the housing bubble, 9-11. We've had all sorts of you know, big setbacks, and we've managed to get back to it, right? And and get society rolling again, and get the economy rolling again, and we'll do it again. It's just the longer this lasts, the harder that's going to be. But again, you know, what I tell my patients is it's a set point, right? It's all relative. So if the entire world economy goes down by thirty percent, well, then prices have to go down by thirty percent, and you're still in the same pecking order that you were in before. So your absolute risk of death is really small relative to your absolute risk of death from anything else, you know, or not from anything else, but from the things that we know. This is nowhere near a top killer in the in the world yet. So 
you know, you, your absolute risk of death is a lot lower than it is for, say, cancer or heart disease or stroke or, you know, probably, you know, I don't know, probably, probably even, well, at this point, it's still a lot lower than it is for automobile accidents or work, you know, work-related accidents or violent crime or like all sorts of things uh, that kill people. You know, diabetes, obesity, these things are killing people still at a much higher rate. And again, I'm not saying that to be glib. I'm just saying, you know, we have to keep it in perspective and say, well, this is going to change how we think about infectious disease as a society. This is going to change how we react to infectious outbreaks. This is going to change the level of concern that people have around interacting with others and washing their hands and disinfecting their environment. And that's probably all good things. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, my mother's seven years old. I don't want my mom to die like that. Yeah, I'd be really sad if that happened. But my mom's at risk for that, right? She's at that age. Um, You know, she has some comorbidities. If she got it, it, that could be really bad. That would affect me personally. It would be super sad for me. But I wouldn't expect all of society to be super sad for me. You know, because that's part of the basal rate of life. You know, people's people's parents die. And again, I I don't want to come off as being glib, so please don't chop any of this into smaller. No, 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 no. we're totally going to make you sound like a flip. <laughs> Can we go back just a little bit and talk? Because I think this is very confusing for a lot of people, including myself, which is just around. You know, everyone wants to make the very clear point to not compare this to influenza. They're two different things, but it's a virus, right? So when we talk about immunity and catching it again, so just put it in a little context, I'm, if I had to guess, I would guess that I just got over it. I think I just had it. Right. Family has had it. My father-in-law, who's about to turn 80, just tested positive this morning for it. He's had like a fever and all the symptoms. <laughs> like run its course through our little clan mm-hmm. i'm i'm you know and i just actually heard like a few minutes ago that governor cuomo got on the news and you know i'm this has not been confirmed yet but said that this is potentially something this is a case where like if you've had it once you are then immune um so they're you know invest so i guess i'm trying to understand and to your point it's like yes you've built up these antibodies so if you do get it, get it again maybe it's not at the same it's not as severe right. uh, you're not going, but it's always, is it always sort of dormant? Is it something that comes and goes? Is it? I mean, we, we would need a lot longer line on that to know, right? So, uh, like, I think a good, a good way to, to talk about it would be to say to bracket it in, in between, um, say, herpes and influenza, yeah. right? That's what I keep comparing it to for people who are like, yeah. oh, I don't have any symptoms. I'm like, think of it as herpes. Right. So, so here's what we know about herpes. There's no cure for herpes, right? It doesn't, it doesn't tend to kill people. So we're not as concerned about it. But if you think about that as a viral infection, all, all viruses essentially behave the same. So they go in your body, they hijack the, the DNA, like they change the DNA of your cell, they hijack that cell's uh, activity, and they, that cell then produces a lot of viruses until that cell gets too big and it ruptures. And then all of those viruses go try to attack other cells. Now, you know, viruses, and, 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 you know, there's way more about medical science that we don't know than we do, right? So we, we basically observe things and we say this tends to happen, but oftentimes there are orders of magnitude of why that we don't understand. So this tends to happen. Everybody agrees this happens. And now we say this is a medical fact. This happens. Well, why does that happen? I don't know. 
uh, maybe because of this. Okay, well, if that's the case, why would that happen? I don't know. Like, you know, there's there's a lot of there's a lot of I don't knows. There's a lot of orders of magnitude of why we don't know. So, but one of the things about viruses is that they tend to spike up and then go back down. And the observation is, well, if they killed all of their hosts, the virus would no longer exist, right? So why would you kill everybody if you wanted you know, if I wanted to hijack people to do my work, I'm creating master slaves, right? They're creating slaves out of your cells. If I'm creating slaves in society, I don't want to kill all the slaves, right? I want, like, I want some of those slaves to, to do the work that I want them to do. And so that's kind of what viruses are doing. So they, that's why the sort of the behavior in China kind of fits what we know about viruses. Now, there are completely non-fatal viruses, or, you know, almost completely non-fatal viruses like herpes. And 99.6% of all people on the planet have been exposed to herpes and would show antibodies to HSV-1 at least. And then HSV-2 is catching up really, really quickly. Um, and then that lives in our cells. So, so our infectious rate, like over the course of my lifetime, if I'm, if I'm carrying herpes, if I get cold sores or something, over the course of my lifetime, how many times do I, how much opportunity do I have to infect somebody else? It's enormous. Right. I mean, you're talking about my whole life. If if something like influenza, if I get something like influenza and it's a certain strand of influenza that's making people really sick, it's a really bad year. Like America was really bad last year. We had sixty thousand deaths, which is almost twice what we usually have. Like it's a really bad year for the flu. Because that that was a slightly different variant, right? So now we build up <clears throat> we build up immunity to that. <clears throat> but what's the exposure rate of that going to be? Well, it's going to be really small because we know that it's kind of morphing every year. And as it morphs every year, like we try to guess with our vaccines, like a lot of people don't know when you, when you get the vaccine, the vaccine is a guess. It's like, well, knowing what we know about all the influenza viruses, virum, um, we predict these to be the three most likely things. And that's what's in the vaccine. We, we expect this, you know, this coming year for these three things, these three to be the most dangerous or the most likely. And that's what we vaccinate against. So it's possible that we'll have something like this for coronavirus. But keep in mind, there, you know, um, there's nothing about this coronavirus. If you would have taken a group of scientists five years ago and say, here's the coronavirus that we're calling, what are we calling it now? Uh, uh, we're calling it SARS-N-CoV, uh, whatever. Um, but COVID-19, we'll call it COVID-19, which is actually supposed to denote the disease now and not the virus, but make things simple. So if you have a, if you have a virus, we had one COVID-19 virus and we had one common cold virus, both coronaviruses, right? And had we had all of the world scientists look at both and say, which one is more dangerous? We wouldn't have known, right? We don't know until the viruses get into people. It's not like there's some kind of evil markers on these that go, oh, this is really bad. So the point of that is like we we still can't prevent the common cold, right? There's so many coronaviruses, there's so many little variants to that that we you know the common cold is by you know by definition common. It happened every, you know, like everybody's exposed to it en masse. So is this just one variant of coronavirus that you know, is like the most vicious in human species, and we can just inoculate against that one variant, and we're going to be fine. You know, like polio, like measles, like rubella, like smallpox. Is it is it going to be that simple? 
again, we don't know. Um, okay, where do viruses go? This is what I'm so... When, the, when there's talk about like, or when it's phrased in such a way that it's like, oh, it's just going to run its course and then it's going to sort of die off. Right. I mean, what, what's, what is really happening when, when people are, are saying So that? Uh, that always makes me think of those um, police, uh, like detective uh, dramas on television where they have the black light and they shine for bodily fluids and stuff. Well, I mean, if you could do that with viruses and bacteria, you would be blinded, right? I mean, it's just like the world would glow because we're just, I mean, there are bacteria and viruses everywhere, like all the time. And they, and like the bacteria actually compete, right? And so good bacteria that aren't as harmful to us, they outcompete the bacteria that are really harmful to us. Um, and and so we we tend not to have a lot of those, even though we're exposed to a lot of those. So a virus, a virus is nothing active about a virus. A virus is a thing. A virus is like a grain of sand, right? A virus is a protein shell that has a little piece of RNA in it, which is essentially a form of DNA. It, it, it yeah, we'll just call it DNA, right? You know, it, it has genetic information in it. The little ball, the coronavirus under electron microscope looks like a it has spikes, so if you look at it flat, it looks like a crown, so this coronaviruses, and it has like this little piece of genetic information in there, and that genetic information goes into our cells or any other animal species, uh, anything that's alive, you know, um, and, it, and it, can, it can inject that genetic information into the nucleus and in, in our cells that changes the expression of the DNA, which then changes what that cell does for a living, so to speak, right? So, uh, you know, it could be a liver cell that's producing things that liver should produce, and then it gets hijacked by a coronavirus, and now it's just producing coronavirus. That's what it does now. So really, when we're saying that a virus runs its course and it goes away, what we're saying is that it's super concentrated, it's in the air, it's it's on our skin, it's in our sputum when we sneeze. It's in our nasal passages. It's in our mouth. It's probably in our feces. It's you know some they're foodborne viruses. They're all they're on people's food, whatever. And then they're like in this case, we have we appear to have no innate immunity to it, right? So meaning that little kids are getting it. We know, right? Little kids are testing positive for it. They aren't tending to be very sick, but they're still getting it because we don't have, as a species, we don't have protection against the virus because it's not something that the human species has been exposed to, at least in great order. So as there's ebbs and flows of like what type of grains of sand are, are laying all over the world, the coronavirus just becomes a less prevalent built, uh, uh, amount of that. Like influenza viruses. Uh, so a virus, the other thing is a virus can't live, for, uh, a virus can't live forever, right? And it doesn't actually live at all. It's a, it, it can't be viable forever. So they degrade. It's a protein structure. It's infinitesimally small. I mean, you can't even, can't even, I can't even give a visual or cognitive representation of how small it is. I mean, no, but that just, makes it actually, that, that clarifies it. Yeah. So, so you have this little ball, this tiny little ball with a tiny bit of genetic information in it, and that, and that will degrade. So when they're saying it'll remain viable on metal for, 24 hours or 36 or whatever they're saying. You know, the, the numbers on that have, aren't conclusive yet. Either. It's viable on cardboard and paper for longer than it's viable on wood and metal or, like, or whatever. Uh, so some viruses get broken down by heat. Some get broken down by sunlight. Some get 
you know, broken down by like who knows what else. Uh, some can get broken down by cold. It could be anything in the environment, water. Like apparently, I mean, I haven't heard anything about any waterborne uh, contamination of this, right? So some viruses thrive in the water, some bacteria thrive in the water, some can't exist in it. So when you know when it, when it's coming and going, what we're saying is like so. It's very likely that this virus has never existed before, right? It's very likely that this is a mutation, and what in what they're speculating, and it hasn't been conclusively proven, and it probably never will be, is that this is a change of host, right? So uh, there are viruses that infect snakes all the time and kill snakes, and humans have never been exposed to this virus, or we don't get sick from this virus. Who knows what? But that virus could mute, it could mutate, it could morph and change to where humans became its most common host. And so this could be a mutation of something that existed, or it could be something completely novel that's come up, and we don't know why it's come up. But because uh, it looks like the main carrier of this, the animal that, care, that this impacts the most, tends, seems to be humans at this point, none of us have been exposed to it. None of us have any immune to it. So we're all going to pass it on very easily, and, and it's going to thrive until we develop some immunity to it. And then, because we've developed immunity to it, we're not going to be passing it around as much, and there's not going to be as much of it laying around. There's not going to be as much of an opportunity for anybody else to get it in the future. And then there's going to be a lot of immunity if people do get it in the future. It's not going to impact as many people. They're not going to be sick. They're not going to be sick as long. They're not going to spread it as often. And that's that's what the that's where the ebb and flow come from. I know that's a really long answer, but <laughs> no, 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 but it, it touches on you know the area that we're kind of making our way towards anyway, which is basically just to say we have to do everything we can to build up immunity, um, which I think we've all been like preaching from, you know, the top of the, from all the rooftops in social isolation. Um, But the reality is I think people still don't really understand what that entails or what like strong immunity or I guess balanced immunity now is what we're supposed to be saying because there's no such thing as like, boosting or improving immunity so much as there is just balancing your immunity. I disagree with that. You can't improve immunity over basal rate, right? So what what I've been talking about most of the time with all this is is the obvious connection of sleep and and immunity. So whether or not there are supplements out there that are highly beneficial for optimizing, let's call it that, optimizing your immunity, right? So Optimizing my immunity simply means that I have the best immune system that I could possibly have. Well, yours might be better than mine for coronavirus. Mine might be better than yours, but we're both we're both at our ideal level. Right? Like my immune system's working absolutely as good as it's ever going to work, and yours is too. It doesn't mean we have an equal chance of getting super sick from coronavirus. So the you know a, another reason I'm really trying to get people to settle down about you know, about just doomsdaying this. So, uh, you know, I'm, I'm really, uh, I'm maybe a little overly skilled at like saying, well, let's just wait and see what happens, right? Like, let's, let's analyze what we currently know. And what we currently know is that the best thing that you can do for your immune system to optimize your immune system is a big shocker. It's all the same things that you can do to optimize your performance in your life in any other way. It's the same diet, it's the same activities, it's the same sleep. It's the same type of stress mitigation. What I've been talking about a lot this week or last week, I guess, um, since this is Monday, I'm, I know on your show, we've, 
we've talked about fight or flight before, right? So fight or flight is the maximum stress state, right? That's the maximum amount of stress hormones in our body. It's our it's our maximal of our it's our maximal response to external threat. High immunity is our maximal response to inner threat, right? So once something's in us, it's our immune system that defends us. When it's outside of us, it's our stress, right? It's our adrenal system that's producing stress hormones is making us stronger and faster and having faster reflexes and you know uh, breathing more and improving our you know our pupils dilate taking more uh, taking more light we get stronger and faster and a and a higher pe- higher pain threshold and more endurance and we because there's something external threatening us now the exact opposite of fight or flight would be almost no physical capability and every all of your resources going to fighting something inside of you, right? Well, the closest you can come to that is deep sleep. When you're in deep sleep, you don't essentially you have the lowest stress hormones you're ever going to have. And you know, your body, your body is essentially incapable. All of the things that are happening in fight or flight are not happening when you're in deep sleep and vice versa. So you're immunocompromised when you're in fight or flight. Your immune system essentially isn't working at all. And why should it? Because it doesn't matter, right? If you don't get away from the tiger, it doesn't matter if you can fight off infections or fight, back, you know, fight off bacterium or parasites or something like that, because you're going to be killed by the tiger. So you have to give you have to get rid of that stressor first. So eating food that you know is not good for you, right? And not good for you in in the sense that it's it's aggravating. So you know, if you if you have any sort of sensitivity to gluten and you're eating you know, bread and pasta and pizza and all this other stuff. Well, you're you're stressing your body. And so maybe that's something that's okay for you. Like, you know, it it has some impact on me, but not enough for my day-to-day life to where I care. So I'm not so I'm I would rather have the pasta than not have, you know, an upset stomach now and then. Like whatever your kind of logic is and wherever you kind of stratify out on that. Well, now would be the time to say, well, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to eat anything that, you know, like I'm not going to do anything that sets up my, upsets my metabolism or upsets my gut biome. I'm not going to do anything that causes like a huge hormonal shift in me, like eating refined carbohydrates and sugars and cakes and all this other stuff. That not only now I have like some antigenic stuff going into my gut, maybe upsetting my stomach and causing an immune response in my gut, but I also have this huge hormonal shift because I've dumped all this blood glucose in there. And so now my body's using resources that, it could use that energy to fight off this viral infection, right? Mm -hmm. Now, the other thing is the activity level. So, you know, activity lowers stress hormones, right? Like you can work out so hard that you, like you can cross it and you can elevate your stress hormones, right? Because you just do, you know, like you push your body so hard that it, it becomes a fight or flight response. But if you're active, if you're walking and washing your own car and mowing your own lawn and cleaning your, you know, cleaning your house and, you know, doing some moderate exercise, riding your bike around, whatever, like that, that's actually good for your immune system. Sleep is the most clear thing, right? It just told you that the highest immunity you ever have is when you're asleep. But it, it also, sleep also, uh, also resets your stress hormones every day, right? Mm-hmm. So every single day, what wakes you up, if, beside your alarm clock, if you didn't have an alarm clock, what wakes you up is having a certain amount of stress hormone. Like your cortisol level creeps up over the course of the night. It goes from almost zero in your first deep sleep cycle. And then it creeps up over the course of the day. And at some point, it's high enough to wake you up because cortisol keeps you alert in proportion to your environment. 
Mm-hmm. I just told you, it's protecting us from our environment. So if something dangerous happens in our environment, our cortisol goes up to fight the external threat. If there's nothing stressing us out, then our cortisol can stay pretty low all day. Now, if we know that the higher your cortisol is, the lower your immune system is, that means the higher your stress is, the lower your immune system is. Mm-hmm. And if you aren't repairing, rebalancing, and fighting off infections, and you know whether it's virus or parasite or uh, bacteria, it doesn't matter, repairing damaged tissues of any sort at night, if you aren't doing enough of that, or if you're not getting deep sleep, you're not getting deep enough in sleep because your stress hormones are just continually high all day. Well, then you my hand. Yeah, <laughs> as then, are thousands of people. Then you're not. Then you're not getting. You're you're not waking up with the ideal stress hormones the next day, and you're not waking up with the ideal immunity at that point either. So the balance is: how do you get people to take something seriously? And still not be stressed about it, right? Right. Like don't don't be stressed about it, but also don't don't be flippant. Don't right. So that's that's the line that that you have to toe. That's the balance you have to strike for each person. Because when you talk about stress and its direct connection to your immune system and how it just chips away at it, we you know we've never really had all of these things happen at at the same. Time, right? So it's like not only is there like the pandemic, social isolation, the stock market tanking, you know, children staying home. I mean, if anything stresses you out, it's your kids staying home indefinitely all day, every day. So we have all of these like stressors and coming from every different angle in a way that we've never had them before. So I wonder if are we just, you know, as a culture right now, as a world right now, our immune systems are taking like a double hit and make yeah. us even less immune to this. Um, so we're we're getting like a double dose. You know, social and physiological stress really are indistinguishable, right? So, you know, if you if you think about something, say like a, um, a, couple, a few thousand years ago, the most dangerous thing in the world was to be ostracized from your tribe, right? You were that was a it was a definite death sentence. You were, you were going to die a brutal, horrible death if your tribe kicked you out. And so there was a lot of social responsibility around you know, not being kicked out because nobody, nobody wanted that. And that's one of the reasons we're so afraid of public speaking because you have thousands of people staring at you. And so there, we have like this innate inborn sense to not have everybody staring at us. It's a really weird thing. Why is everyone staring at me? Maybe I've done something terribly wrong and it causes anxiety for reasons we're not aware of. And so. You know what? What stresses out the human species? It doesn't matter if it's physical. It doesn't matter if we're in a famine and we aren't getting enough food. It doesn't matter if it's economic and we're worried about doom and gloom. It doesn't matter if it's war and we're seeing horrible things around us and there's tons of uncertainty. I mean, imagine how much uncertainty existed in Europe during World War II when the entire world was being destroyed. You know, except America, essentially, right? Like every every country is being completely decimated. And when was that going to build back up? And were they even going to live long enough to see it build back up? You know, there was a lack of food, and there, like, there was all sorts of things that that could have uh, that could have killed you. All sorts of things to be stressed about. And and I think, by and large, is is proven by the death rate of developed countries, and even the even the morbidity rate. You know, just like the amount of disease and injury that we can sustain in our lives and still live. Like it, things are going in a really good direction, and I think we have a lot more uh, potential for immunity uh, and for dealing with stress. If you say, if for lack of anything 
better a better way of saying that. You know, I, I think we have a lot more potential than we realize. And a lot of it to me, um, you know, it's sort of a cognitive behavioral technique is just to reframe things. Like it's really easy to reframe all of this. Like I could be pissed off that my kids are home all day and like, man, you kids are driving me crazy. But I could also say, well, shit, like if this could be a fatal disease, I mean, there have been 50-year-old people dying. So this could be my last week with my kids or my last couple of weeks with my kids. I'm going to cherish every moment. and I'm going to laugh at the stuff that usually stresses me out, you know? So... I mean, you you can you can spin it you can spin it any which way. You know, it's like you can say, well, you know, society by and large has has pushed shoved the responsibility of raising your kids and schooling your kids off to strangers, and it doesn't seem to be going really well. And this might be a great time to actually reevaluate that, and for people to have a better understanding of maybe what their kids need, and maybe this transforms the educational system. So there could be some upsides to this, and it you know it's it's a different stressor, but I. I have a hard time believing it's it's a higher stress than the human species have ever experienced. I mean, I don't think it's anywhere close to that. I don't think it's that so much as I think Zoe's point is, you know, where I agree. It's just, it feels like it's compounded because it feels like all of our systems at once where, you know, when you have like a stock market crash, it's devastating for some more than others, but it's a devastating experience. But you feel like, okay, well, I can take comfort in you know, spending some time with my girlfriends and like having some wine and thinking about stuff, you know, other stuff. But like right now, you can't do that because spending time with other people is forbidden and drinking wine, which we've all been doing, is not optimal for our health. But we're all doing all of these. It feels like it's coming from all different directions. Well, and I, I think, think there's a balance there. Like I would, I would say if, if you get a, if you got five friends on a Zoom call and all drink wine and pretended like you were together, that might be a net positive for your immune system. We're already doing right? that. No, I mean, it, if you if you all drink two bottles of wine each, that's a net negative. I'm almost certain. But if you have a couple of glasses of wine over a couple of hours and chat, probably a net positive. So yeah. my point is, we don't have to shift life that much. Totally agree. Yeah. And I think your other point, you know, it, it rings really true. Like there are certainly going to be some positive outcomes or just different outcomes. Like you know, right. your son saying staying home or people working remotely. Like I think those things. Are probably going to be in place for a long time. I think that we as a society are going to be forced to accommodate to this new type of reality where, yeah, like there's going to be a lot more working, you know, remotely. There's going to be a lot more distance learning. And it's not necessarily a bad thing. We just have to figure out how to how to like navigate it and ride it out because it's gonna it's it's not gonna, I don't think it's gonna change. Yeah. And and you know, it, it's been pretty obvious to most economists anyways that the next that you know, the next big economic bubble that's gonna rupture society has been the education bubble, right? right? So if we know that this is unsustainable, maybe this pulls us out of that. Maybe it pulls us out of that nose out of maybe it prevents it all together, maybe it puts it off another ten years. You know, but but it, you know, in the absence of uncertainty, and this is what we all do, whether we realize it or not, it's a really constructive thing to do and deliberately push yourself. Towards is that, you know, and with with the lack of information about the future, which is substantial all the time, right? Like we, no one can, nobody can predict anything. Right? We couldn't predict the last president. We can't predict stock markets. We can, you know, there's all sorts of things we aren't. We can't predict hurricanes. Like, you know, we we have some limited success in these, but we're pretty we're pretty bad at prognosticating. But we can examine the we can examine history. We can ex- examine the past. And the and the best metric for you know for it, out of of a friend who's a psychologist who always says the best predictor of past behavior of future behavior is past behavior 
right? And so this is true on an on a economic scale as well, right? So you know, the Great Depression being huge in America, if you didn't need to sell any stocks, <laughs> you would have only had to hold on to your stocks for eight years to actually be net positive during the Great Depression, which is still, that's eight years is a long time. I get it. But you know, we've come through that. We've come through you know, the, the 2008. We've come through you know, the Enron scandal, the housing bubble, the dot-com 9-11, like we've come through a lot of things. We always bounce back and we always bounce back way faster than the prognosticators say we're going to bounce back. The one piece of sleep information that I feel like every time I share this with someone, they're like, their jaw drops. And it, and of course, we learned it from you, which is, you know, enough sleep is important, but when you sleep is also quite important in terms mm-hmm. of doing all these beneficial things for you. So could you just... Could you just broad stroke that again really quickly? Right. Because I've had a very hard time convincing my brother who sleeps very late and goes to bed very late right. that he's effing up his system. He's not in the rhythm. He has to go to bed much earlier, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, so can you... Right. So we do know if you... There are chronotypes. So there are people whose circadian rhythms, if you measure hormones and body temperature and activities and heart rate and blood pressure, if we measure lots of things about people that we know are associated with circadian rhythm, there are people who just feel that later in the day, people who feel that earlier in the day, and they feel like going to bed earlier. In the day. But the most important thing is to be somewhere around that, you know, within reason. So two hours is probably okay, right? So the ideal time to fall asleep is about three hours after the sun goes down. That and that I say it's ideal because that's just what happens if we don't have electricity. That's about how long the chemical changes in your brain take, and then you fall asleep. Then you wake up right around sun up, and that tends to be somewhere between seven and nine hours of sleep, depending on the time of year and where you live, you know, relative to the equator and lots of other things. You know, it basically the the closer you, the closer you can come to that, the better. Now. If you're awake, as long as you're getting your eight hours sleep, and let's say instead of going to bed at 10 o'clock, you're going to bed at midnight. Instead of waking up at 6 a.m., you're waking up at 8 a.m. Nah, probably, I mean, without a team of scientists around you and a couple of months to study you, we probably don't know if if that has any kind of significant impact on you. But definitely going to bed at 3 a.m. and getting out of bed at 11 a.m. the next day, that's, that's definitely... Uh, impairing your your overall physiology. If you want to optimize your physiology, that's the most important thing to optimize. I'd rather you eat donuts and <laughs> sleep at the right times of the day than than you know eat a great diet and and sleep at the wrong times of the day. So, yeah. what is the one thing that we can all do starting tonight to get a slightly improved sleep? Because I know for me, it's been like I was totally fine eight hours in a row, like never before last week. And then, I don't know, everything changed. Now I'm waking up every night at like 4 a.m. My heart is pounding, whatever. Sometimes it's alcohol-related, sometimes it's not. So I've removed that as a factor. But what can we all do tonight that is going to help no matter, no question? All right, this will be a really unpopular answer, but that's what I do best. <laughs> um, get rid of all social media. Get rid of all media. If you want to know what's going on with the coronavirus, go to PubMed, go to NIH, Go to the CDC, go to Johns Hopkins site, look at academic sites, read with academically oriented people who do this for a living, read what they're saying, right? 
or or do whatever it is that will decrease your anxiety around this. So I would say, you know, one thing that I've had now my clients do, and even my clients who I know really well, and I've I've worked with some of them for years, uh, there's still a little bit of shame or hesitancy to share maybe your deepest, darkest fear to someone. So, you know, you can do this alone. It works better if you can talk about it with a friend or loved one, but if, if you can't, you can't. But I'd say take an inventory of what's really what's really upsetting about this too, right? Are you really worried about the economy? Are you really worried about your parents? Are you really worried about your own health? Are you re- like, are you really worried that, like you know about political reasons? Whatever, like, what is it that you're truly worried about? And you're probably worried about a little bit of all of that. So, to what degree, like, kind of rank order, what you're really worried about? And then I would say go about. Um, Reframing it, like go go back, look at some look at some data about that. Specifically, you know, look at historic data. Like, has anything like this ever happened before? Well, yes. And what you know, what happened then? And what? And okay, so these are possible outcomes. Now I can reframe that. I can respin it because here's here's the one thing that's absolutely true, and everybody looks, everybody overlooks. Uh, nobody on this planet knows anything more about life than I do. And nobody on this planet knows anything more about your life than you do. Like we don't know. Like we don't know what we don't know what's real. We don't know what's fake. We don't know what's hyperbole. We don't know what's being underrepresented and what's been overrepresented. We just don't know. And we're never going to know. And we don't know what is the best spin on anything. Uh, however, if something makes you feel better, if something if a certain spin makes you feel better, even if it turns out to be completely inaccurate, it made you feel better. It improved your sleep. It decreased your stress, and it may, you're going to do better. Okay, good advice. Unplug. Do what you need to do to de-stress. Right, and so then the other thing. I don't know if we talked about this on your show before, but did, did we do the list where you split the page down the to-do list and the to-worry list? No, that's okay. Good. All right, so you take a piece of paper and you draw a line right down the middle. Now, one side is your to-do list. And you look, you write down everything you have to, to do, and you choose how far in the future you want to do. I don't care. Six months, a year, six days, whatever you want. Like everything I need to do is on the left side. The right side is the to worry list. And this is the side that's more impacted by the coronavirus than the, the to do list, obviously. The to do the list is probably shrinking uh, right now, but the to worry list is higher. So, the difference being is that the to worry list is something you have nothing, you have no control over. Like it, this is shit you have zero control over. It's nothing you can do, but you don't want to forget to worry about it because we as a species, we like to think about what could go wrong in the future. And we want to make sure that we've at least considered it before this inevitable consequence comes down on us. And that we've considered it 8,000 times in a right. Like brain loop. Yeah. Right. Right. It's like laying in bed and worrying about that the decision you made six years ago is screwing up your kid's mental health 10 years from now. <laughs> More, I mean, I'm not telling you not to do it. I understand that's probably not the constructive thing to do. So here's, here's the agreement. The reason we make a list of all this is because we're absolutely giving you 100% permission to worry about everything that you're worrying about. And we're giving you 100% commission, permission to be concerned about everything that's on your to-do list. Well, what I'm taking away the permission... The only place I'm taking away permission is during your sleep hours. While you're supposed to be asleep, you're not allowed to think about the things on your list. And there's a reason, not because I told you not to, but because you're not as capable at handling that list. 
So the more important thing than the list itself, and I and I also tell people if they if they're laying in bed and they realize there's something to worry about or there's something to do that's not on their list, get up and put it on your list. Because here's the agreement: you're going to set yourself an alarm clock. It says now is the time I'm going to start getting ready for bed. And as we talked about, all of your senses still work when you're asleep. You just aren't paying attention to them. You can still see, you can still smell, you can still taste, you can still feel. You can still worry. Like you're just not paying attention to it, but you, all of your capabilities are still there. So what we're doing with, with this is we're saying the most capable I am at handling my to-do list and you know, during working hours, I probably have more opportunities to deal with my to-do list. And the most, more importantly, the most capable I am at handling my to-worry list is when my brain and body are operating at their peak. And so when they're operating at their peak, or when are they operating at their peak is right when we wake up. You get progressively less capable throughout the day. Your ability to handle stress and make rational decisions gets worse the longer you've been awake. So if I set an alarm clock and say, starting as soon as that alarm clock goes off and you can choose an hour before you go to bed, 30 minutes, at least 30 minutes, but an hour, hour, you know, half an hour, an hour, hour and a half, whatever, the alarm clock goes off. When that goes off, you're taking away any senses that's going to interfere with your ability to go to sleep. So you're not putting bright light in your eyes. You're not putting loud noises in your ear. You're not stressing out your brain by watching, you know, contagion or something, you know, to do with a, a viral infection or outbreak. Um, you're not you're not doing anything that's going to stress you out. Uh, low activity, low noise, low interaction, low light. You're getting your you're decreasing the amount of information that your body's perceiving. If nothing else, you're reducing the amount of stress that you're having during sleep, and that's restoring you, which is going to, without any consent or effort on your part, that's going to lower the stress the next day just because you repaired more and you lowered your stress hormones while you were asleep. So tomorrow, you might react the same to any kind of new stressor that comes your way, but your overall stress is going to be lower because you started from a lower point. Make sense? Yeah, totally makes sense. Yeah. So hard to do though. Man. It is. This is a great opportunity to learn some new skills. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that is true. Yeah. That's true. Great to reframe. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much for all of these helpful tips. And I think um, I will probably go make my list pretty soon today. And get, <laughs> no, jump on that. There you go. So Look at you. Look at you. You gals stay safe out there in New York. And, uh, I'll, I'll see you on the other side sometime. We can we can talk about how all this looks in a few months or something. Yeah, I can't wait for that moment to look back on all of this. I really can't. <laughs> Thanks for listening to HTW. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and make sure and rate us on iTunes. You can even give us five whole stars if you think we deserve it. If you have ideas for guests or topics, you can call our 1-800 number Yes, we have a 1-800 number at 800-674-1839 or holler at us on social at HTW Podcast. You can also head to our website at htwpodcast.com for more episode info and check out our Daily Blend blog to see what we're drinking.